we are finishing up sort of a summer series on lament, which we've been describing as a passionate grieving directed at God. And the book of Lamentations is certainly that. Actually, Lamentations is very much like a war memorial. I don't know if you've ever been to one. Maybe the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., or Ground Zero in New York City, or the beaches in Normandy, or Gettysburg, or maybe you've even seen some of those signs around Nashville that remember a specific time and a specific place. They say, remember the people. Remember what happened here. And the book of Lamentations is very much like that in that it remembers the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. It remembers that the nation of Babylon, whose leader was called Nebuchadnezzar, came and laid siege to the city and destroyed it. And because the book of Lamentations is a collection of poetry, we have a very intimate and dark view of what that suffering was like. We have a very personal taste of the anguish that the people felt, the chaos, the pain. I think in some places it's actually quite suffocating. That's a theme that goes all the way through the book of Lamentations, and and actually Lamentations chapter 2, what we're going to study today, takes it a step further. And it tells us that the destruction of Jerusalem was the deliberate act of God himself. And so in that way, the theme of Lamentations chapter 2 and the theme of our sermon today is the wrath of God. As we start to consider it, it might help to think about a definition. What do we mean when we say the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's just anger against unrighteousness. The wrath of God is his right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. The wrath of God is his right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Now, even as we begin this morning, I want to start by taking a quick aside to say that we're going to look deeply at what happened to Jerusalem oh so many years ago. And one of the challenges to that is that we will look at what happened there and try to make a template for how to understand suffering in the world. And that's not what the Bible tells us about suffering. In fact, the Bible tells us many times that suffering is not necessarily a measure of divine displeasure. In fact, the Bible tells us over and over again that we cannot know the mind of God and we cannot know why he allows suffering. And so we need to be very careful that we we look at what happened here and focus more on the character of God, focus more on what we can learn about God's wrath, and not really apply a template for how to understand suffering in our modern day to what we might be experiencing now. But Lamentations 2 is very clear that this suffering and this time and this place was the deliberate act of God. And I think, friends, that is just a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing to consider. I know that many of us wrestle with that question. How can God be a God of love and a God of wrath? How can God be a good God 
and be intentionally directing the suffering of his people in this most terrible way. Now, if that's something that you have struggled with, I know that I have, I think it should give you great comfort to recognize that Lamentations 2 actually asks that question. The Bible gives voice to that tension between God's goodness and his wrath. And it's something that we have the opportunity to learn from today how the Bible addresses that tension. And I know it's hard. I know it's a challenge. But I think two things. First, if we can't talk about hard things in church, where can we talk about them? And second, I don't think we can afford to avoid God's wrath. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it may seem offensive in some places. But the the wrath of God is all over the Bible. It's all over the Old Testament. The wrath of God is all over the New Testament. And so if we're going to be a people who love God, if we're going to be people who love his word, I think we need to understand it, be able to give an account for it. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that today. The way we're going to do it is by treating Lamentations 2 like a war memorial. We're going to look at three different plaques on the wall. The first plaque, we're going to remember God's wrath. And the second plaque, we're going to remember God's justice. And then we're going to remember God's faithfulness. God's wrath, his justice, and his faithfulness. Now, Lamentations 2 has 22 verses in it. Uh, I'm not going to read those all for us uh, right now at the beginning. Instead, I'm just going to read the first three verses, and then we'll walk through it as we go through that first section together so you have a chance to hear from the whole chapter. So if you have found Lamentations 2, would you stand in honor of God's word with me as I read for us from verses 1 to 3? How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand and the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. So first, we're going to remember God's wrath. And I think these three verses serve as a really good introduction to this whole chapter. Let's just look at some of the words that are used to describe God together. Verse 1, the Lord is angry. Verse 2, the Lord is without mercy, and he is full of wrath. The Lord cuts down in fierce anger. The Lord is like an enemy. He is burning like a flaming fire. Friends, this passage is about the wrath of God. And it's clear that the destruction that is brought to the city of Jerusalem, the bringing down from heaven to earth, the destruction of its splendor, 
the tearing down the strongholds, verse 2, bringing down to the ground in dishonor, consuming all around, verse 3. That destruction, that is the deliberate act of God himself. God is the subject of those sentences. He casts down. He swallows up. The Lord destroys in his anger. And friends, that refrain goes on for nine more verses in this chapter. The Lord destroys. And it's brutal. Look at verse 13. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? These questions are meant to make us see that nothing can compare to the suffering that's happening in Jerusalem. There's nothing that's ever been seen that's like it. The suffering is as vast as the sea. It's endless and dark and chaotic and overpowering. Nothing can heal them. Look at verse 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we have longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The heap of the city of Jerusalem stands destroyed under the thumb of its enemies. And they are celebrating. They are dancing a victory dance, a brazen dance against God's people. And to watch it, to experience it, was anguish. You might imagine the horrors of an ancient army laying siege to a city. They may not surprise you, but they are powerful when you read about them. Look at verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out onto the ground. He can't cry anymore. He's so ill that he's vomiting when he sees what's happening. Still, verse 11, because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city, they cry to their mothers, where is the bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. The siege has taken hold. The children are hungry. And they say to their parents, where is the food? Their parents have no answer. And their children die in their arms. Verse 20, it actually gets worse. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. 
You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned, as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. The siege is so terrible and the hunger so severe that mothers have lost their minds and are eating their children. And when they die, there's no one to mourn for them. They lay in the dust of the streets. They're not buried. They're food for the birds of the air. These are people that this author loves and held and raised, and no one survived. This is the anger of the Lord laid out against the people of Jerusalem. And to be honest, that's not all that different than what has happened to Israel before. We read it now and we get this terrible, dark, suffocating view of the suffering. But I think this was pretty common in the ancient world. Israel had been defeated by enemies before. They'd been enslaved in Egypt. That wasn't any better than this. This type of suffering was common. So what is it? What is it about this suffering in particular that makes this lament so profound? Well, it's that God has abandoned his people. We see that coming out in verses 3 and following. Let me read uh, verses 3 through 9 here. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemies the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. 
So you see in these verses, we get that picture of suffering again, the, the destruction that we see all throughout the chapter. But right away in verse 3, we can tell that something is different. Because the Lord has become like an enemy to his people. This would have caused a gasp among the nation of Israel. God is our God. We are his people. He has always been our right hand. He has always been our defender. He led us out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He led us through the desert. He brought us into the promised land. He fought the battle of Jericho. He's the one who has always been our might in battle. And here God is taking his right hand. Not only is he removing it from his people, he is putting it on the bow and aiming it at them. That's not it. He destroys their palaces, their very seat of government. He destroys their strongholds, any sense of national identity that they might have had. I mean, think what it would be like to see Washington, D.C. raised to the ground, or New York, or San Francisco. Any sense of who you were as a country would be destroyed. I don't know if you saw as well that he took away the king's the monarchy that was meant to provide peace, and the priests, the people who were meant to mediate the relationship with God, and the prophets, the very voice of God. God is taking away all of the institutions that were meant to help the relationship between him and his people. And he took away the temple. I don't know if you saw that in verses 6 and 7. He laid waste his booth and his meeting place, He scorned his altar and disowned his sanctuary. Friends, Jerusalem was where the presence of the Lord physically dwelt. And he wiped out their temple. And then he said, you're going to forget your Sabbath, and you're going to forget your festival, your calendars. You can't worship me anymore. And there are some striking things in this chapter, but I think one of them that we might miss actually comes in verse 9 when God says the law is no more. That means the Torah is no more, not just a general sense of lawlessness, but the very covenant document that binds God to his people is taken away from them. He gave it to them when he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and the law, and he said, this is how I'm going to relate to you. This is how you do justice. This is how you live together. This is how you worship me. It was their very lifeblood of knowing that they were God's covenant people, and God has removed it from them. All of the suffering of Israel up to this point, they had one thing that they could hope in. We are God's people. He's our right hand. He is with us. We have the temple. We have the law. We have the kings. We have the priests. We have the prophets. And in 587 B.C., when Jerusalem fell to Babylon, those things were taken away from the people of God. God has become their enemy. This is the wrath of God. It is powerful and destructive, and all-consuming, and terrible. And the author of Lamentations cannot understand it. 
He cannot understand it. Look at verse 19. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Lord, just look and see. How can you let this happen? I thought you were our God. I thought you loved us. Don't you see the children? Don't you see in your house the priests being killed? How can you be the God of my father? The God who brought Israel out of the promised land or into the promised land. How can you be that God and let this happen? I don't understand, God. And to be honest, there really isn't an answer given in this chapter to that question. For that, you have to wait till next week when we study Lamentations chapter 3, perhaps one of the greatest statements of God's faithfulness anywhere in the Bible. This week, we're meant to sit under the pain of the wrath of God, to consider it. And two of the things that the author of Lamentations does in this chapter that I think are important as we consider the wrath of God and how a good God could let something like that happen is to call us to remember his justice and his faithfulness. And so as we finish reading this plaque on the wall to God's wrath, we turn and we see here a remembrance of God's justice. And what we're meant to see, the connection that we're meant to make, is that God never gets angry when he's not supposed to. God always gets angry at objective moral evil. You see, I think one of the problems that we have when we read through a passage like this is we project how we get angry onto how God gets angry. We look at his anger and we think of him like a father who's flying off the handle in a fit of rage who is arbitrary and who is violent and who is having a temper tantrum almost. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible only ever gets angry when he's supposed to at objective moral evil. And the place that we see that coming through in this passage is really in two places. The first is in the echoes of the rest of the Bible. So a lot of the language in these verses that we have already read often is actually a direct quotation of things that have come before. Most often in the prophet Jeremiah, which comes just before this book in the Bible, it leads right up to the fall of Jerusalem. And then this remembers the fall of Jerusalem. So much of this language is similar. We're meant to remember what's going on right up to the fall of Jerusalem. And it's not a pretty place. It's not a pretty place. Jerusalem, before God judges it, is a place of oppression. It's a place where kings and priests are making names for themselves at the expense of the people in their kingdom. 
Look at verse 14 for a minute here. This, I think, is the, the most obvious place where it comes through. It says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. This, this verse is supposed to be like a hyperlink for us. We're supposed to see that, read that, and it's supposed to remind us what's going on in Jerusalem. The very mouthpiece of God, the people who are supposed to speak to his people and call them to repentance, they are speaking deceptive visions. They are lying to God's people. Jeremiah tells us that it's for selfish gain, for greedy gain. They're making money on the backs of the people. This is a terrible place. In fact, I I think I'd like to read for you one of the examples of this in the book of Jeremiah. It's in chapter 19, just a couple of pages back. Let me start in verse chapter, or chapter 19, verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom they neither whom they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocents and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall be called the Valley of Slaughter. Jerusalem was a place where innocents were being killed. They were being, children were being burned as offerings to a harvest god of Baal. This was not a place that was God's place. God loved those children who were burned in the fire. He made them, and when he saw them being burned to a harvest god, he responded the only way he could in justice and in anger, and he said, no more. God only ever brings his wrath when he's supposed to in just anger that is a response to objective moral evil. Friends, I think the problem for us comes that we just aren't connected to that pain. We look back at the people of Jerusalem and we say they didn't deserve it. It's thousands of years ago. I think, though, if you were the mother of that child that got burned, you might have had a different perspective. I mean, just think about the last year in our country alone. Forget the images of Syrian children or the refugee children around the world. Just think about the United States for the last year. Hasn't your wrath been kindled? Haven't you demanded justice for the children who get shot by police officers because of the color of their skin? Haven't you demanded justice for the children who are abused by the team doctors that are supposed to care for them? Friends, we want a God of justice. We cannot tolerate a God who looks at those things and does nothing. We need him to be angry. We have no hope if he isn't. You know, many of us are reading this summer a book called The Lighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. This is uh, an official plug for the summer book study on Monday nights. 
It's wonderful. In the end, it has a really poignant section on how God's wrath and his love work together. And I want to read a passage for you that's a little longer than I might normally read, but it's so good. The author is quoting a Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf, who is writing about the horrors of ethnic warfare in the former Yugoslavia. Here's what he says. I used to think that the wrath of God was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. And that is exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. God's wrath in the Bible is never arbitrary. It's never self-indulgent. It's never irritable. It's never morally wrong. God's wrath in the Bible is always a right and necessary response to objective moral evil. The third thing that we are supposed to remember in this memorial to the fall of Jerusalem is his faithfulness. We've remembered his wrath. We've remembered his justice. And now we remember his faithfulness. I think it's important that we recognize that in Lamentations chapter 2, there is no hint of accusation of God. I think you could read this and think that the author was accusing God of being unrighteous. But in fact, like all of the lament in the Bible, this is an honest grieving that's directed at God. Look at verse 18 and 19. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. 
Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. I don't know about you, but as I was reading this passage, I thought the author had lost his mind. Didn't you just see what you said about God? He is your enemy. He is destroying you. Shake off the dust and walk away. That's not how this author responds at all. There's no hint of accusation in his voice. In fact, in his grief and sorrow and suffering, he turns to the Lord. Arise, cry out. Pour your heart out before the Lord. That's what lament in the Bible is always like. It's not that the suffering isn't there. The suffering is there. But we turn to God in our suffering. And one of the things that this author tells us is that God did this because he said he was going to do it. Look at verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. One of the things I think we miss in the translation here is that this verse is out of alphabetical order. I don't know if you remember, last week we mentioned that all of the Chapters in Lamentations are what's called an acrostic, where each paragraph or stanza starts with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And verse 17 goes out of order. It'd be like saying Q-R-T-S. That's not a mistake. That's not because the author couldn't figure out how to put it in the right order. He wants us to pay attention right here. And he says, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. Friends, God told his people that he was going to bring this judgment on them. Actually, he told them that all the way back when he established the covenant with Moses. He said, these are my words to you. Do them and I will bless you. Don't do them and I will curse you. I don't know if you've read that lately. It's in Deuteronomy. It's like two pages of curses if people don't follow the words of God. It's intense. And God's people turned away from him. And he sent them prophet after prophet, generation after generation, saying, come back to me. Relent of this evil you're doing. I will forgive you. But if you don't, if you don't, then I'm going to judge you. I think it might actually be helpful to to go back and read one of those, just so you can get a, a flavor for it. I'm going to go back to the prophet Jeremiah again in chapter 22. I'm going to read from verses 3 through 9. Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. Carry out righteousness. Worship me and I will bless you. You will have kings that sit on the throne in peace and prosperity and you will be my people. Verse 5, but if you will not 
obey these words. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, you are like Gilead to me, like the subbit of Lebanon, a beautiful place, a treasured place. Yet surely I will make you a desert, an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Friends, he told them, Turn away from this abomination and I will not destroy you. And they didn't believe him. We've got this saying in our house that we have to be committed to our no's as parents. Because our kids know that when they ask us something like, can we have some more ice cream, and we say no, that we really want that ice cream actually. And if they just work a little bit harder, we will probably change our minds. We want to be people of our word. I think the people of Israel just didn't believe that God was committed to the judgment that he had promised them. They said, we have the temple. We have the prophets. We have the priests. God will never take that from us. They just didn't believe that he was coming in wrath like he said he was going to. And so the picture that we see here is that God is faithful to the covenant that he made with his people because he judges covenant unfaithfulness of his people. God did what he said he was going to do, because he is always faithful to his word. And that is a hard thing to hear. When you step back for a minute and look at this chapter, Lamentations 2, about the wrath of God, it is just overwhelming to think that God would send this kind of wrath on his people. To think that he did it because he was full of justice and he was faithful, that is just crushing. If that's the end of the story. But, of course, it's not the end of the story. And the only hope that I have ever found as I've studied the wrath of God and considered it again this week is in the cross of Christ. Because, of course, that too is a memorial to God's wrath. It's just a few miles away, actually, on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And when you walk up to that memorial, you remember that Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. Seth read it a minute ago in 1 John. It's what the Bible calls our propitiation. A substitute who bore the wrath of God. And so when you stand on that hill with the cross in view and look back at the rubble that was ancient Jerusalem, you actually see this picture of God's wrath and you remember, this is the wrath that I deserve because of my sin. And this is the wrath that Jesus bore so that I wouldn't have to. And now all of a sudden, his faithfulness and his justice are remarkably good news. 
Friends, he was faithful to judge because he's always faithful to his word. That means for us, he is going to be faithful to the promises that he has made to us in Jesus. He is going to be faithful to restore us and redeem us. He's going to be faithful to make us his children. 1 John says, when we confess our sins, God is what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If you are having a hard time reconciling the wrath of God with the love of God, you are in good company. My encouragement to you is to look to the cross of Christ and see that Jesus came to die because he loved you. God hated sin in the world, and he knew that wrath was due his people for what we have done. And so he sent his son to drink the cup of wrath so that we would not have to, and he did it because he loved you. The wrath of God is as real as our sin. And we are meant to be afraid of it. We are meant to see this wrath and run as fast as we can to the cross of Christ. And so, friends, if you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, my prayer for you is that you wouldn't wait another minute. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are just that, our Father, who sent his Son to die because you love your children. And Father, we don't understand the pain and the suffering of this world. We don't understand your wrath so hard for us to bear. So I pray that you would remind us of the goodness of your love for us, of the goodness and love that you had in sending your Son. I pray that you would remind us of your justice and your faithfulness, and you would hold us fast until you come again. Help us, Father, we pray. Amen.